I think the goal of art is to go in and be challenged and come away at the end of the day with something that we didn't know when we walked into the studio that morning. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast so they can enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and that helps to keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like exclusive merch, as well as bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes and sign up to hear Tim's chat with today's guest. And if you want a little cash while still supporting the show, you can sign up for a yearly subscription and get 15% off that tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves, which is why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Raj Banag, who graduated from the Maryland College of Art in 2012 with a BFA in printmaking and is currently pursuing his MFA at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Raj is known for his massive, mind-bogglingly detailed relief prints and is certainly a printmaker who could teach us all a thing or two about carving. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel and see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. This episode of Hello Print Friend is also brought to you by McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. Their small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad, whose primary purpose is to help you find the materials and support you need to reach your printmaking goals. In addition to their high-quality Japanese carving tools, McLean's has resources, books, DVDs, and information on how to use everything you need to make a woodblock, from barons and blocks to paper and whetstones. So head on over to McLean's at imcleans.com or follow the link in the show notes and learn something new today. My guest this week is Cole Rogers, co-founder and master printer at the High Point Center for Printmaking in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We'll talk about starting the workshop, the importance of community access, following your passion rather than playing it safe, and making art outside of the coasts. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to not hear a single joke about Fargo with Cole Rogers. Hi, Cole. How's it going? Hi. Excellent. How are you, Miranda? I'm really good. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So would you mind giving a little introduction to yourself before we dive into some questions here? And I always ask my guests to answer the questions, who you are, where you are, what you do. Hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, yes, well, uh, I'm Cole Rogers. I am the artistic director, uh, master printer, 
and co-founder of High Point Center for Printmaking. Uh, we're located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And what, uh, yeah, what do I do? Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, on a good day, I'm making prints. Um, yeah. I try and do as much of that as possible, but uh, running a printmaking studio with as many different faucets as ours, um, really, I only average about... Uh, um, maybe half of my time doing that yeah. and more of the time uh, is more administrative and um, kind of thinking into the future, brainstorming and doing research, um, kind of trying to stay a step ahead. Um, yeah. I, I don't do as much of the physical printing as I originally did. Um, I'm usually on the front end of uh, proofing things and getting things going and then <clears throat> usually have some people who are doing more of the production. Uh, so I don't do as much of the physical printing as I originally did, but, uh, yeah, I love to keep my hands in it at at any time possible. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's a story that I hear from other people as well is that, you know, they're really in print because of, you know, the love of the physicality and the making. And then often though, when they have to really turn into a business and be on their own two feet, there's so much more that goes into it. You know, maybe they had this idea that, yeah, I'm going to go be a printmaker and I'll just get to to be in the studio all day. But of course, life's more complicated than that. Yeah. 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 That's funny because uh, my undergrad experience was I had to work at a bike store to put myself through school. So I worked on bicycles um, to, to make money and then I made art uh, in class. And there's definitely a separation. And then I went to uh, this place called Penland School of Arts and Crafts. And it was the first time that I did nothing but make work all day. And it was it was only a couple of weeks but it really fired me up to see that I could kind of blend uh, the way that I made money into a way of, of life uh, around art. And so I became very dedicated. And, um, yeah, for a long time, I did spend more of my time making work. But there always is that component of how do you make your way in the world financially? Yeah, definitely. And so where did you grow up? And what role did art play in that part of your life? Uh, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, My uh, dad and mom were um, kind of on the edges of the art scene. We had art in the house and we definitely had prints. But um, my dad went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill on GI Bill and uh, studied literature and art worked in the theater in, in New York for a while um, and then worked in advertising uh, back in the days when people used rubber cement and uh, pasted up ads by hand and oh, he did all the copy wow. and everything and my mom uh, was a drafts person for AT&T and uh, always drew beautifully had some of the most incredible handwriting and so I was well mom did wonderful wonderful um sewing and came from a family of potters out of Virginia. So there's always some artistic and creative practice, but I didn't know artists when I was growing up. So um, when I went to the museum, I really didn't know uh, how it got there. (laughs) Uh, And so there's a little bit of a disconnect as far as professions. And I never, never saw myself becoming an artist um, professionally, but it was always something that I did, and there's always a creative element in my house, um, whether it was in gardening, cooking, or um, yeah, other pursuits. 
Yeah, I love that. And I love when people say that, you know, they saw art in their home in a number of different ways, you know, through any kind of making, like you said, like gardening is a form of art and cooking, of course, is a form of art. And, and even, you know, having beautiful handwriting. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. I always am just completely, uh, yeah, just completely admire anyone who has that that sort of penmanship that uh, is is so intriguing. I, I, I definitely admire it. Mine's awful. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. And, and both my parents were very into sewing. Um, and, and my dad was very much so into caning chairs, uh, meaning um, weaving chairs. And yeah. So it, there's, there, there are all, all sorts of ways to, to uh, have creative outlets. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like lots of, lots of making, lots of doing with your hands yeah. one way or another. Yeah. yeah. And so where does printmaking come into your story? <laughs> um, I, I thought I wanted to go into architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a very deep um, background in drafting in high school, and I wanted to go into architecture, but uh, being dyslexic, I had um, real difficulties uh, having any interest in the the rote um, math classes I was having to take and some of the the really under classes. And I took a a printmaking class with this really crazy motorcycle riding outlaw uh, dude who (laughs) uh, (laughs) made and he was his not your stereotypical artist and um he you know very early on told all of us he said you know if there's anything you can do in your life and be happy uh besides art do it he said because art is um difficult financially um but uh he really inspired me and uh i took an intaglio class with him and it's been uh a journey since then uh john dylan was was a, a real mentor and uh, really set me on this path. Oh, that's that's such a beautiful story. I love that advice. It's so practical and so true, though. That's like, look, if you're not called to art, just you know, go yeah. find something that's going to be a little it, easier. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be happy, you know. And he wasn't saying don't make art. Right. He was just saying that if if you can be a happy, fulfilled person in any other way. <laughs> that there, uh, there are other ways that are a bit easier that uh, earning that art degree um, only is the first step because you really have to figure out things on your own. Uh, mm-hmm. That degree is not like a degree in civil engineering right. or, you know, other degrees. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because I'm thinking about it, how it kind of relates to my own life, you know, and I've um, been in the art scene in one way or another for about. 10 years. And at this point, you know, you're like, you're like, okay, it's like, I'm, I'm 36, definitely not going to buy a house anytime soon. You know, you're kind of like checking through these things. And while, you know, you always see people you went to high school with and they're, you know, they've, they've got a house, they've got, I don't know, kids, this sort of thing that you can, you can do when you are an engineer, for instance. And, but it's just, I just can't imagine doing anything else. And at this point, I can't imagine being good at anything else. I'm like, this is, this is my craft, you know, this, this world is something that I have so much really specific information about that it's very difficult to imagine going and doing anything else at this point that it's, it's, I'm, I'm here whether I like it or not. <laughs> well, well, the 
It also depends on what makes makes you a fulfilled person. Mm. Is it, is the house going to make you more fulfilled than having something that you love to do every day? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it it depends on what recharges you and fills your soul. Mm. That's such a good point too, because it is sometimes people can get into the uh, needing to check the boxes, right? And yeah. they think they think because it's either because it's what they saw growing up, or it's just because something they picked up along the way. But it really is, you know, I never not want to go to work. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I work at an art gallery here in Bangkok, <laughs> and then I do the podcast as well. And both of them, I get to talk to artists, I get to try and support artists, I get to talk about art. And I never have a day when I wake up and I think, oh, again, you know, <laughs> which I know a lot of people do when it comes to going to work. So that I mean, that's certainly worth something. Yes, it is. It is. As long as those are as long as you're checking boxes that are your decision. Mm-hmm. Your love, your love, not somebody else's uh, idea of what makes a life. Yeah. And so you you took this course with your the, your sort of biker mentor. Your your and yeah, yeah. You were drawn to, or it sounds like you took Intaglio in that course. Um, yeah. And then, so how do you get from that to choosing to? found high point um what's that <laughs> what's that trajectory uh, uh, like uh the trajectory is uh, are you familiar with that um old movie trope where they ask for volunteers and there's a line of people and everybody steps back except for yeah. one doofus <laughs> yes. and that, that one doofus is looking around right, like what happened you know, why me what um uh, it was kind of, um, boy, undergrad, uh, I, I got really fired up at Penland and I uh, really turned around. I was on academic probation. Um, was, I, I kept dropping classes and I was um, not real motivated, um, except uh, with art. And, and when I came back from Penland, I went immediately to the dean's list and graduated with honors. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, well, I, I just I found a calling. I found you know motivation. And then I went off to Ohio State. I wanted to get out of the southeast. I, I wanted a, a, a different um, location. And there I met this this uh, wonderful uh, person, Jeff Sipple. And Jeff was teaching lithography. I was his TA. And he, you know, got a job at Tamron Institute as the education director. And before he left, he said, you would, you really should apply to Tamron. You, you would be perfect. And I said, no, <laughs> as when I, when I was working with John Dillon at University of Alabama, John was intimidated by lithography and I was viewing the Tamron book of lithography as the Bible, as uh-huh. most people do. Yep. And I was looking in there to try all these things and he'd come in and see me trying an acid tint or something. And he'd say like, I didn't tell you to do that. And he'd <laughs> shut the door really quickly because he was afraid I would ask him questions about things he didn't know uh, because he'd really rejected technical printmaking um who's who's very much so in the pop artist um vein of Mm -hmm. anti-technique and um so jeff kept writing me and saying you should you should apply and i got into tamarin much to my surprise and it was a incredible group there are eight of us there's a person from south africa a, a person from new zealand a swiss person danish person uh the other people are from the u.s most everybody there had worked in professional shops mm. uh, so it was a really competitive class and um it was it was a great experience uh 
And at some point, uh, we were required to write a paper on uh, starting a print shop because I didn't realize that when June Wayne started Tamarind in 59, her vision was to have people go out and start studios. Mm. You know, uh, all I knew about Tamarind was it was like the preeminent place to learn lithography. That she had a vision that there'd be master printers that would start studios. And so I, I wrote my paper for Marge Devon and uh, turned it in. And in the late 80s, there was this huge bubble and uh, the market crashed, mm-hmm. uh, the art market. And at that time, the idea of starting a, a publishing shop was insane. <laughs> uh, shops were closing everywhere. And my vision was, well, you know, could could you diversify your income? And artists that rent studios, why, why shouldn't they rent a studio attached to a print shop? So maybe you would have a print shop and then that would be the, the core and then is kind of satellite studios. There would be studios for artists and they could rent some time in the print shop to try and diversify your income. And I turned it in and March gave me a, a, a minus and, you know, <laughs> I stuck it in my, my folder and like, there's no way I was going to do that. That, that was uh-huh. crazy. You know, it was just an assignment. Yeah. And so I moved on and I looked around at different shops around the U S and moved to Minnesota to work at Vermilion Editions. <laughs> And while at Vermilion, um, they closed down pretty quickly. There was a, a disagreement within the um, stakeholders, and it was reformed under the name Acacia. And Acacia had a very difficult time financially, and it was pretty much so me and the master printer. And I could use a shop at night, but there was no one else around. And what had drawn me to printmaking was that moment when you pull a print and there's somebody else in the studio and you show it to them and there's a little short instant critique Mm. or they pull a print or there's that camaraderie in a studio where uh, you're learning things together and you're sharing things and stealing ideas. Mm. And that that was really what drew me to printmaking. But it... uh, Acacia, I was in this big studio by myself and I missed it and it made an impression. And when I left Acacia, I was, uh, I accepted a job at Minneapolis College of Art and Design starting their printmaking or uh, running their printmaking studio. And at that time, uh, there was no studio access for anybody in, in Minneapolis or the Twin Cities or Minnesota, mm-hmm. which I had encountered when I was at Acacia. I, I would tried making connections. I tried finding studios where there were uh, public studios. There were none. And it became very problematic over the years while I was teaching people to to draw lithographs or uh, make etchings or screen prints that there's not a next step. And right. this private arts college was expensive. And my students, you know, this is 20 years ago, they were coming away with an average of $60,000 in student loan mm-hmm. debt. Uh, you know, against their future that literally had paid my salary and and my um, insurance, my benefits. And I was teaching them something that there's not a next step for. Yeah. And that just didn't feel correct. (laughs) And, um, you know, I talked to a lot of people, uh, mostly professors of the 19 colleges and universities in the state that teach some sort of printmaking. We all thought that, you know, there should be this this place where uh, people could could graduate to rather than taking continuing studies or uh, working on the side with a wink and a nod by their professor to use the facilities. And it wasn't until I met Carla McGrath and um, Carla, the co-founder of High Point, was teaching um, kids classes at the Walker Arts Center. 
and she wanted to find a press to teach kids classes around a Frank Stella show that was uh, print-based. And we got together and found a press. And as part of the curriculum there, they, the Walker wanted to do some adult classes. And Carl and I taught couple of adult classes. And after one, um, we were cleaning up and I told her this crazy idea that I had about a studio. And she said, well, what about uh, kids? What about, you know, would there be kids classes? And I was like, no, <laughs> no. Uh, you know, I just I was being really short sighted. Uh, I was only thinking about the professional artists or my students adults who had already arrived at the love of printmaking. And I went home and it's like, oh my God, that's like, that makes so much sense. It's like when I said that I didn't know how art got into museums. Um, you know, how do you make that connection? How do you fire up the next generation? And uh, so <laughs> she and I talked and um, it just became clear that uh, like the, the person who was standing uh, when it Everybody step back. It's, that's what it felt like. It's like, okay, you've had these experiences. You've run mm. MCAD's program, and you know the budgeting. You know, you know, you've you've scheduled classes. You've worked in professional shops. You've had all this this background. It's like, if you don't do it, who's going to do it? Yeah. And then to have a partner like Carla, courageous, um, smart, um, tenacious person uh, that you know did did all the things that I couldn't do. Mm. <laughs> uh, the Grant writing, the, um, uh, I mean, it was just, it came together on its own. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because I was looking at um, some of my questions sort of further down for you. And one of them actually is about this mission that High Point has where you're producing, you know, absolutely beautiful works with professional artists, like the high, you know, the high, high end, technically, artistically. But then you also do have classes for kindergartners. And that's, yeah. that must be wise. It, it, it comes from the very early days, it sounds like. Um, and Carla being interested in making sure that you're planting the seed for the next generation of artists as well. Yeah. 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 It's a cycle of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something that is so important and does get overlooked so often. This idea of that it's not just even the artists, it's the collectors, it's the patrons, it's the scholars. It's this whole art ecosystem that we have that yeah. keeps everything going, that keeps us able to keep the lights on in our studios and food on our tables. And without it, you know, if we let all kids just sort of fall into TikTok and never come out, yeah. you know, yeah. we're, we're not going to be around in 30 years, you know, like there's not going to be um, a scene to support it. So it is really wonderful that High Point is doing that. And it's something that I'd, I'd love to see more studios and more artists doing as well, because it's printmaking is such a, a fun uh, physical, of course, you get the reveal, which is always magic. And I imagine it's particularly like to kids, they must love that. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's incredible and that's that is one of the most inspiring things to see a kid that uh, comes in and does a dry point on a little piece of zinc and that morning when they got up you know they knew that they're going to do a field trip but they mm -hmm. had no idea what <laughs> you know it, and, and they they come in and they do these little scratches on plates and they wipe it with a piece of tarlatan and run it through the press and this this press that you know they've never seen before for and it's it's magical you know watching them pull that first print and it's really touching on on so many levels and 
yeah, it's mm. it, it was a big part that was missing in academia for me. Mm. Uh, oftentimes, there's this kind of loop, closed loop system where I would teach, you know, and I'd invite someone and they'd be the visiting artist and I'd go out to, I don't know, Michigan, I'd go this place or that place and it, you know and southern graphics is something that i participated in since the early 80s and love but you know it's the same people it just feels uh-huh. you know like you go to art openings it's the same people over and over it's like, like we've not we've got to open this up we've yeah. got to invite in new converts mm-hmm. and um you know no piece of cloth is made up of one piece of thread and it's the weaving like you said of the collector's you know, some somebody only wants to look at art. Some people want to collect art. Some people will make art. Some people will make it professionally. You know, and all those different um, interests, you know, overlap and support each other. And we, sometimes we forget how many, you know, to, to use the whole thing of it. It takes many people to take to make a village. Mm-hmm. To really create something that's that's self-supporting, and you know, I go back to cycle of life. Mm. You know, it's it's really important. Yeah, yeah. And something I've been thinking about lately, because I don't know if this is part of just we're we're in the middle. Well, not probably not the middle. I was gonna say we're two weeks into a pretty severe lockdown in Bangkok at the moment. So I've just been sitting at home, working from home for two weeks and, you know, no, no real sign of it, if it letting up, because we're still, um, you know, having record highs every day of COVID cases. So it's not, not, Uh not a positive sign for, for, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel at the moment, at the moment. But, um, so I've been thinking, I've had time to think, and I've had time to think about what I do and what art does, you know, and I think that that's something that when you're facing a a global pandemic and you're still waking up every day and washing your face and changing into clothes and sitting in front of the computer and taking zoom calls and trying to make something happen with art. And I have, you know, my team at the gallery and they're just like, what, how are we, what do we do today? You know, how do we, how do we try to engage people? And it can be really hard, you know, to keep the motivation up. But what, one of the thoughts that's kind of been in my head lately is that, is that art is, it's like the shortest distance between two people is that you can be at an art opening or in a studio with another person. And if you're both looking at the same work, you have something to connect over and you have a way, something to discuss and respond to. And even if that's, I like it, I hate it, you know, you don't even have to agree, but there's something about that sort of visual communication and storytelling that really brings two people together. Um, yeah in a way that I don't really know that much else can. And that that seems really worth fighting for, you know, really worth kind of even when you're in sort of the muck uh, to yeah. keep to keep going, because that's something that is a really important part of being a human is being able to connect with other humans. And we're just, you know, we're in 18 months of connection really becoming um, a lot harder. And for many reasons, you know, logistical, political, financial, for all kinds of people, you know. Um, and it's, and so that kind of really working on keeping art going and keeping that whole ecosystem alive, it just is such important work. And I'm so happy to hear that High Point takes that on. Yeah. 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 Well, in some ways, art is hope. Mm. 
Um, I talk about oftentimes that we don't make signs. We don't, um, you know, our, our objective is not to walk into the studio and have something that we know that we're going to do. Like uh, today we're going to make something that's octagonal. It's going to be a red field. It's going to say STOP in white letters. We all know what we're doing. Um, I think the, the goal of art is to go in and um, be challenged and come away at the end of the day with something that we didn't know when we walked into the studio that morning. And that's really the, the inspiration um, for most artists to walk into the studio because it's not easy. But that surprise and that wonder whether or not you're making the work or you're viewing that work mm. It is very much all about hope and it's about um, taking materials that uh, did one thing one day and, and having them do something differently. And, yeah. You know, and, and that wonder and that surprise and that delight. And um, yeah, I, I think art is very much about hope and recreation and creation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and yeah. 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 And that's it is such a powerful way to find meaning in one's life. And I see it when I interact with people who aren't in the arts. You know, most of the people I talk to are in the arts just because of, again, you know, I've been doing it for 10 years. I'm married to a printmaker. I work in print, I work in, uh, art gallery here, work in printmaking through the podcast. And then every once in a while, I'll run into someone who's maybe not in the field and you listen to them and you listen to them like talk about their job or talk about what they do when they're not at their job. And, they they don't and this is you know not true for everyone but sometimes they just won't have that that spark that artists will have or people who work in the arts that excitement that and and hearing you say that it's hope i really feel like that's a very good way to describe it is that they don't have that kind of hope of i'm going to do something that surprises me or surprises someone else or is interesting today and that's such an important reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that goes back to what my uh, mentor, John Dillon, was saying. Some people do find hope or excitement. I, I had a, um, uh, a math major as a roommate when I was an undergrad and being dyslexic, I couldn't really understand his interest in numbers and uh, Euclidean <laughs> math. And, you know, it. It, it was exciting to him. And there are researchers, they're finding new cures for the virus that that's exciting to them. And thank God, um, yeah. you know, art, art is a form of research and, you know, it's, it's very important. It's very inspiring. And whether or not we're talking about music or uh, poetry or whatever, it's, it's another way of expanding our knowledge and, uh, giving us all hope and creating, you know, new visions. Mm, yes. Yes. I love that art is a form of research because one of the things when I try to explain to people why I think art is important is that, and it's interesting you should, you know, mention you're dyslexic because I'm dyslexic as well. And I try to explain to people that there's this whole other side of your brain that isn't working in black and white letters and in numbers. And you can access that through art and you can explore that through art and you can get into human experiences that you can't connect with, you can't speak to, you can find emotions and ideas that you won't be able to access in other ways. You know, the same way that, you know, 
I was never particularly good at math either. So, you know, there'll be there, I'm sure there are things in quantum mechanics that I will never be able to access, you yeah. know, but it's, it's a whole nother way of reflecting the human experience that is just as rich and varied and uh, rewarding as really any other part or any other method of trying to reflect the human experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that um, made me move away from making my own art. Um, when I was teaching and when I was running a department and I was having less and less time, I was making um, safer and safer decisions about my art making. Mm. And I was, I was becoming more afraid of uh, failure and mistakes. And um, so if I had a show coming up and I needed 20 pieces for a gallery, um, I started becoming precious with something that I was working on. Mm. And it's really important in um, any form of art making when we're talking about research is that there needs to be areas for failure. Mm. And we need to unafraid of that failure uh that's you know if you're not pushing the envelope um then you're not really pushing into areas that you don't know about yet and it's the areas that you don't know about yet that reveal things to you and um it's it's definitely research-based and sometimes there are times that um you need to throw something away that you've been working on and mm. can feel very precious and you don't mm -hmm. want to get it. but uh it's it's important that we we learn new things through our through our art. That's how that's how society and and humankind progresses. Yeah. Uh, not just uh, not just in the sciences, but in the the arts. Absolutely. That actually brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you, which had to do with your role as collaborative printmaker. Because um, you said that you sort of have moved away from making your own art. And so you're you're now um, working in the studio with artists who may or may not have a background in printmaking or much understanding about the technical side of printmaking. And I always am curious to ask collaborative printmakers, makers, particularly ones who do it professionally and have been doing it um, professionally for a while, what do you see sort of as your role in that? You know, are you just a conduit? Are you a artistic collaborator? How do you come to what, how you fit into the creation of that work of art? Yeah, well, well each collaboration is different. Mm. Uh, just as any person, any human being is different, they all have different needs. And um, pretty much so, my philosophy is I, I like to work with people that haven't made a lot of prints. Mm. Um, why should we invite, you know, we've got very limited amount of time and resources. And I don't really believe in bringing in someone that's already making a lot of prints. If we're then going to make more, mm. uh, I really like the idea of exposing a new person, <laughs> infecting someone new with print box. <laughs> exciting collectors with someone new that um, maybe they know as a painter or sculptor or something else. Um, I know a lot of printmakers don't like to hear that, but I do, I do really like expanding the field with people who it's new to that's, it's an awkward thing. They really, they're not thinking prints when they come in. Uh, they don't think like a printmaker and they ask us to do things that um, a printmaker would know to avoid uh -huh. <laughs> or uh, would, you know, think differently and they stretch our abilities. And so I like to throw in, uh, we do the four traditional print media, uh, intaglio relief, screen printing and lithography. 
And I like to uh, throw, you know, at least three of the different media at them and just say, you know, we're going to play. We're not going to try and make art today. We're just going to see, you know, what it feels like. And sometimes I'll think, oh, lithography just sucks. You know, that's just <laughs> I can't do, you know, or screen printing, I love or whatever. And, and, you know, have them kind of experiment and do some, some kind of tests and play around. And, uh, if, if I have my preference, I do that for two, three days and then I go back to the studio and kind of let that marinate, let the experience marinate and then come back and say, you know, I was really digging, you know, that, that soft ground etching. I really like the, the look of the spit bite or, you know, and, and let them get inspired and let them come back with, inspiration from that initial uh, contact and then kind of move into the project and try and keep it as open-ended as possible uh not determine the size yet not determine if we've got borders or it's a bleed or it's a this or it's a that and just kind of let them explore and my role is to stand back and um kind of stay out of their way but be a safety net uh that Sometimes they'll they'll have a little difficulty here or there, but to not get my hand in there too early. Mm. Uh, I've had people. Um, I think the first and most informative uh, situation was when I was at Tamarind with Eric Avery, and I told him, you know, you you take this and you you know you mix this touche up and you don't shake it or it'll make bubbles. And of course, he shook it up and <laughs> it made bubbles, and and the patterns were beautiful. And, you know, and everybody's going to have a different handling of materials mm. and to try and come to it, like, come to it on their terms rather than me dictating terms. And for us, because we're supposed to be the, quote, <laughs> master printers or whatever, and let them challenge us mm. uh, rather than us dictating how they're supposed to come to the medium. And um, so I think it's it's knowing like when to step in, you know, when 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 they're a little bit over the head or when they need help, but staying out of the way as much as possible and trying to make the end product look effortless. Ah. Make it look make it look, you know, and that's that's years ago uh, I attended a lecture by Chuck Close and he was talking about golf and I know nothing about golf. I don't <laughs> but he was talking about making a painting being like that you take big swings at the first and then you make smaller and smaller corrections. And that's kind of my philosophy is don't start sweating the details early Ah, uh huh. and let someone let somebody make some mistakes and ask you to do things that you don't really think are going to work. And if what they ask you to do actually works like with Eric, you're surprised. And it's, it's a new thing that you didn't know. It wasn't something that you had to offer them. It was something that they had to offer to their own print. But then if it fails, then they know that you that you've got their back, mm. that you trust them. And that's important because if you start a collaboration with, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. Where does that leave your artist? You know, the, it's like going on a first date and handing them a uh, prenup. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh -huh. so, so I think my role is is kind of a guide, but um, letting them try and find their own way through the woods. Mm. Uh, and hopefully, and I think if you look at our work, there's not much of a look. I think a lot of um, studios, uh, there's a look. You know, you can pretty well identify 
you know, either by size or technique or this or that uh, they're make. But I hope that every print that comes out of our studio and in, in the High Point Editions is owned by the artist 100%. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so do you have any particularly <coughs> memorable collaborations that you want to share stories about or, or ones that you're particularly proud of? Uh, well, you've heard the expression, they're, they're all like your children. Yes. So it's, <laughs> it, it's hard. Um, God, um, usually usually it's, it's about where we encounter some sort of a difficulty that um, we have to overcome. Um, one was the easiest to, one of the easiest to identify was Carlos Amorales from Mexico City came in and he wanted to use these templates that were made out of plexiglass to do these drawings and their outlines. And um, they were not working well with the lithographic crayons because the litho crayons were sticky. And as he had moved, moved the templates, they would slur the image. And eventually we got the idea of using the templates to actually print from. And they were like big plastic protractors. They're plastic that was engraved, laser engraved. And we started printing them like intaglios. And it spawned a huge um, body of work uh, that I never would have thought about. <laughs> and Carlos certainly wouldn't have thought about. Um, had an artist, uh, Sarah Crowner, come in. And she wanted to do what she called a um, contemporary woodcut. And as a printmaker, my, my first thought is, okay, so we're going to get a piece of flat wood that she's going to carve into. And, you know, I, I, already, it, it was, I was thinking like a printmaker, like I was saying that people that know about prints are already thinking in a particular way. And so she had us inking up all these different surfaces. And we went to Home Depot and she found uh, something called um, Oriented Strand Board, which is just a horrible... <laughs> horrible surface to print uh -huh. from and you would never think of as a woodcut and she loved the surface and we inked it up and it was really intriguing mm -hmm. and we ended up um cutting it and it was an incredible surface something that i never would have thought of um on my own um delita martin we're we haven't finished her pieces yet but uh she was in the studio wanted to print on some uh, antique christening dresses. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, the, she only had a few because they are hard to find. And um, so I, I asked her if she was willing to try making a collagraph from, from one. And she did, uh, or we did. And it ended up just being a really beautiful thing. And we've got a series of seven prints from that piece. Uh, Willie Cole, we had him come in and uh, we were trying a bunch of different prints. Uh, we tried a couple of lithographs, definitely would cut um, some screen prints, but we took an ironing board, a old metal ironing board that we flattened and um, tried printing from, and it indicated a direction around um, uh, an image of the middle passage uh, of slave ships coming from Africa to the United States with enslaved people. And he had some ideas around that, but he went back to his studio and we got a, we procured more ironing boards and proofed them up. And his idea was that it would be a maybe eight foot by 10 foot print with these ironing boards portrayed as slave ships. 
uh, with blue and white ripples around them. And when he saw the individuals, he fell in love with them. And he said that um, they were much more beautiful as individuals. And mm-hmm. they really reminded him of um, his grandmother, who's a domestic worker, uh, and the women of her generation who had taken in laundry um, to support their families. And he ended up uh, making a series of 30-some prints from ironing boards uh, dedicated to the women of that generation, named after as many of the women from his family as he and his mom could come up with and then adding some in. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, you know, the, the ones that are the most memorable are always – or Todd Norstein, we did some uh, Trumploy masking tape prints with him. Oh. Uh, yeah, they oh, they're phenomenal. And um, you know, each one's kind of its own little journey, uh, journey of discovery. Uh, some of them are incredibly technically difficult, mm. uh, uh, you know, and really stretches. But um, yeah, they're, they're they're all like our children. You know, they, we love them. They each have their own stories and um, you know highlights and difficulties. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine that it's um, you know each one is its own journey, as you say, and so it's sort of yeah, yeah, like to get from from point A to point B. Yeah, the the Willie Cole pieces. Um, Jennifer Roberts speaks to those in her series. Um, in the Mellon lectures. I don't know if you had a chance to see those. Um, yes. But that was when I was first introduced to them. Uh, and just incredible pieces. And I was, yeah, glad that they show up again in the um, Hello Print Friend podcast uh, chat, because they're really beautiful. And if anyone hasn't seen those or the lectures, I, I highly encourage to look both up because they're they're great pieces. Yeah, and I'm so glad that they got the attention they deserve. Willie is an incredible artist, and I was actually with him two days ago at the Whitney's closing of Julie Maratou's show, and mm. got to spend day with him and just incredible visionary artist I, I just i love him he's, he's a great great human being yeah so i think that i'd love to ask you before uh we have to sign off if you have any advice for younger printmakers who want to start an editioning studio or a community studio or teach workshops i know that it really is a dream for a lot of young printmakers, you know, as a way to make printmaking their life, as a way to build their community, as a way to just make art. Um, Do you have any words of wisdom for someone who's maybe just getting out of undergrad or just getting out of graduate school right now and thinking about taking on what you've taken on? Yeah, yeah. I I would say uh, first, um, be willing to um, dedicate yourself Mm-hmm. to follow your passion that um, if you're if you really 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 want to do this um, that it's not going to be a short road it's it's going to be something that you need to work on for a while mm-hmm. that um, you really need to do research you need to be dedicated to um, learning about your craft you don't start a restaurant just because you like cooking, right. uh, you need to work in a restaurant. You need to learn the craft. You need to learn the business. Um, you know, there there are a lot of people that can print really well, but there are other fa- facets. And when Carl and I 
first started talking about starting High Point, that was uh, 1997. And we didn't open High Point until 2001. Uh, we started off with a lot of brainstorming. And then we uh, visited studios around the United States. Well, we both had jobs. We, we took our, our time um, and, because we were really dedicated. We weren't going to do this kind of on the side and do it half-ass. It was like we're going to jump in with both feet. And so we we visited studios around the uh, country, stole ideas, uh, researched what they're doing. And then we went back to our own community and asked our community. Early on, we had a roundtable of all the printmakers that we knew of what they would want in a studio. And we started taking people to lunch. Uh, there are people that are in development, people that had mm. different um, skill sets that we didn't didn't have. And we pitched this idea. And, you know, they they were flattered that, you know, we're going to buy them lunch and ask them for their opinion and, you know, and, and kind of take your time, because if you're really if you really want to do it, um, you know, trying to trying to start off right is, is important. And so it took us uh, three years of um, working on the small business plan and um Knowing that, you know, your early platform, you know, the early days when we had openings, there weren't a lot of people that came. And we yeah. had an opening last night, which we had over 300 people mm-hmm. uh, at the opening. And we've got 50 um, people that rent the studio, 50 people in our artist cooperative. But when, in the early days, there were like three or four, <laughs> you know. And we didn't know if it was going to be like the party where that you throw and nobody shows up or the party that you throw and like the police arrive. And it's uh-huh. <laughs> kind of been the, the latter, uh, but it didn't happen overnight. And so I think being thoughtful um, and really doing your research. Um, do you do you really do you really know what it takes to to have thirty people in space? Do you do you know what it costs? Right. Uh, it really helped for me to run MCAD's print shop for five years and have the budget and schedule classes or work in professional studios. Um, uh, Carla's background is is an attorney um, and working in uh, the Walker Art Center teaching kids classes. There's there are some life experiences going in there that uh, were helpful. Mm. So if you're young and you want to do it, I'm not saying delay. I'm saying build it over time, you know, and, and you know, really learn. And there are other people that are doing what you want to do. And if you can get them to pay you for some uh-huh. level job or job so that you can learn from their experience and watch how they're doing it, please do. Uh, because jumping in uh, before you're ready can, can be really difficult. And building a good platform means that the structure under it needs to be really solid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's all really, really good advice. And I think particularly that idea of sort of the the patience and the building and to be strategic. You know, it sounds like you're saying like, know kind of where you want to go. You just before you set out, you know, don't just sort of start out and be like, "Ah, it'll be fine, you know, like, find out how much things cost and and do the numbers. And then it was also what you're saying about, you know, Carla being a lawyer and having taught the kids classes. And it reminded me of all of the different jobs that I've had just to survive in the world that weren't in the arts and being able to pull things from that too. You know, I've learned a lot working in galleries, but I also learned a lot 
having to work retail at a mall, you know, in terms of dealing with people and selling things and uh, learning how to make a schedule for employees. You know, it's, 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 you can do many things, but as long as you kind of have your eye on where you want to end up, you'll pick things up along the way that I think would be really useful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because that's something that um, is a mantra for me with interns and the young people that work with is you need to have as many tools in your toolbox as possible. Those retail or other um, jobs that teach you things that you may never need. But, you know, there's one day that all of a sudden you need to know something. Mm. And, you know, that depth of knowledge, if you know, it's the whole thing of like, if all you've got in your toolbox is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Totally. And, and when I walk into a shop and an artist like Dolita wants to do something and all of a sudden I'm going like, oh, yeah, a calligraph for, you know, maybe I haven't done one for years, for years, but it's something that I've, I've done, uh, practiced or somebody wants to do photogravure or, you know, it, it. You really need that fullness of expression, not to be scared by all the the twists and turns that life will throw at you. Because running a studio, you're going to have to have a lot of hats on. And the more experience in different areas, it's going to be less scary. And you're going to say, yes, I know how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think anything you can do to make it less scary. And that just comes from, as you say, a variety of experiences and and knowing how to take on the unexpected uh, with confidence, I think, is a huge part of it, too. Yeah. So just to kind of close up here, what are some things in the future of High Point that you're excited about? What's on the horizon that people can be looking for um, and that, yeah, just you personally are looking forward to? Well, uh, I am looking forward to High Point thriving. Mm. Um, it's it's oftentimes a question that we get, like, what's next? And uh, um, I'm saying just being here is is good. Uh, there's always this expe- expectation of growth or um, other things. We, I mean, geez, we've got like pre-COVID and hopefully not too long after this, we have an average of 5,000 school-age visitors a year. We've got a teen program. We've got six to eight gallery shows a year. We've got 50 people working in our artist cooperative. We participate in print fairs across the country. Uh, we just... The Minneapolis Institute of Art just acquired our archive, and they're going to have a big show in a couple of months. Uh, We have artist residencies. We're a very important part of our community. People walk in. We're in a high-traffic area. We're not in a warehouse district, so we have people that walk in every day that know nothing about printmaking that we get to meet and tell them about printmaking. And, you know, as long as we keep doing that, I'm good. (laughs) I'm I'm excited about that. You know, it's, um, you know, when we started, I knew from the very first day that we were going to be trying to teach people what original prints are. Yeah. And that was not going to, (laughs) we were not going to achieve where we're not going to be doing that. And we, you know, and and that's our mission and teaching people what prints are and giving them the chance to experience them or see them or make them. That's, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's all about growing the next generation. And (sighs) 
you know, it. I don't, you know, if if High Point's here in a hundred years, that will be amazing. Yeah, that would be. If we're here in twenty years, another twenty, I'll I'll be happy. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm excited about, um, you know, next year and the year after. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful to hear. And where can people find High Point uh, in the digital sphere if they're not in Minneapolis? And then where can people find High Point if they find themselves in Minneapolis? Oh, man. Well, uh, of course, through our website, our Instagram, uh, Facebook, um, yeah, the digital stuff is, um, I think most people know how to access that. Yeah. And um, they should. But I think it's more important that if they're ever in the area, um, something that we something that we built into High Point is that, like I said, we're in a high traffic area. We didn't want to be in a warehouse space yeah. so that people would have to search to find us. We're easy to find. We're on main thoroughfare. And when you walk in the door, you see our gallery and you can see from the gallery into the professional shop. We've got big windows and you can see back into the artist cooperative and our staff just loves interfacing with mm. people that walk in. It's it's so much our mission to just spread the love of printmaking. Yeah. And um, so please give us a call. Anyone that has thinking about visiting Minneapolis, um, please give us a call and um, come in and and see us because nothing beats seeing us in person. That's beautiful. Excellent note, I think, to to wrap things up on. So thank you so much, Cole. It's been really wonderful to chat. Totally my pleasure. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Abel Alejandre. We'll talk about growing up in a small town in Mexico and coming to the U.S. at a young age, the social construction that makes up masculine ideals, and the unexpected and often intimate conversations he can have with men at his exhibitions. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.